You're listening to DraftKings Network. The guy that he has inextricably linked his career to wants out from his property and has called him a liar publicly. That, of course, has gone viral. In, of all places, China. to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. I'm your host, Andrew Brandt. Hope you're having a good August, enjoying the relaxing summer you have. Hope you enjoy this podcast. And it's unique in ways that you can't find elsewhere. Insights on sports, perspectives on sports business, sports topics that you don't find anywhere else. Always appreciate comments that you give this podcast, sharing it with friends, and of course, any ratings on Apple Podcasts are very helpful to us. We're produced by Jack Connell, music producer Sam Brandt, my son. A lot of things to get to today in a Brandt's Rants edition of the Business of Sports. We're going to start with NFL running backs, not the dystopia that we've talked about for a month, but just a little more specifics. Because after waiting for months, months, Ezekiel Elliott and Dalvin Cook sign yesterday, or agree to terms at least, Cook with the Jets, Elliott with the Patriots. Now we have those names off the market, at least that's the way it seems. A lot to get to here. First of all, as I just mentioned, any team at any moment of any day in the past, for Elliott, six months could have signed Zeke Elliott. No one did. Any team for the past two months, any time, any day, could have signed Dalvin Cook. No one did. That was telling in itself. Now, the, the thing is that we're not talking about players long removed from their stardom. Elliot more than Cook, of course. Elliot's probably a year and a half removed from being a full-time back for the, for the Cowboys, although he has been productive even in the last year. But this is a guy, Elliot, who signed a five-year, $90 million contract. That's right. Five years, $90 million contract. Excuse me, six years, $90 million. So 15 a year. He signed this deal, and it was 2000, I don't know, 19, I believe. And why did he sign? Why did they do this? Well, he was threatening Cabo. He was the last running back, I think, to really leverage the situation, and Jerry Jones got scared and blanked. Good for Elliott. Now it's come back to haunt him. Because Tony Pollard has a good year, he's got fresher legs, and they move on from Elliott, and he signs a below, way below what he was supposed to get. We'll get to the numbers in a second. In terms of Cook, we're not talking removed from stardom. He was one of the top five rushers last year. He was in a 1,000-yard rusher last year. Now, we're not talking about 2021. We're talking about like six months ago, this was one of the top running backs in the league. Now, it's not surprising he signs with the Jets. It's surprising... He's on the market that long. We heard about Miami. We heard about other teams. And the Jets sort of hone in at the, uh, at the last few weeks. But, wow, these guys were on the market all that time, and they're signing one-year deals. And when you sign one-year deals, you know what that means. In a few cases, 
the exceptions rather than a rule, players get one-year deals and then they jump off to big, big, strong, long-term deals. That is rare. The more the exception is, players who sign one-year deals end up signing another one-year deal and end up signing a no-year deal after that. It's kind of a move down towards the retirement side when you're doing one-year deals. Elliot, $4 million. Again, according to reports, $3 million in salary, $1 million in bonus. At least the $1 million bonus will prevent them from cutting him. I don't think the Patriots will give away a $1 million and then cut Zeke. So he'll make it $4 million. And again, this guy was making $15, $16 a year. We understand that was a bad deal. It was never going to be picked up. But to come down to this number is really to get Zeke Elliott even a year removed from when he was highly productive seems like a good price. Obviously, he's not going to be a full-time back. But that's Zeke. And Dalvin Cook, who could be a full-time back, is coming in with Brees Hall, who's coming off a major injury, $7 million. That's all we know. We don't know if it's real money. And then, of course, both these deals has incentives, but incentives that don't really count. They're kind of deal closers, in my opinion, to get the deal done. They'll throw in things like rushing incentives, receiving incentives, touchdowns incentives. Sometimes, as we know with Saquon Barkley, tied to team performance, such as the team making the playoffs. So there you have it. Cook and Elliott signed deals for way below market. They saw the reality of the marketplace, and they saw it wasn't going to get better. It's not like they could sit around in training camp and hope for an injury. Hope for an injury, and then what? They're still getting the same money. That's about what they're going to get. So these two guys who were making 16 a year and 12 a year, 28 a year combined, are now making 4 and 7, so they come from 28 combined to $11 million. And that's really the whole thing we've been talking about for weeks. The running back dystopia. And again, I'll say it again. I've said it many times. This is systematic, Right. You can't say it's just because of Elliott or just because of Cook or just because of Saquon. It's systematic. Starting in college, three years requirement to be draft eligible in the NFL. Those three years are high-earning years for running backs, probably not for other positions, but they're prime performance years for running backs. We saw it back in the day with Maurice Claret. If they could be in the NFL at age 18, 19, 20, or 19, 20, 21, instead of starting at age 22, there'd be a lot more earnings for running backs. Because by the time they finish their rookie contract four years in at age 26, or if they're a first-round pick like Barkley, age 27, or if they get a franchise tag, 28, there's no interest in doing long-term deals. We saw that with Barkley. We're seeing that with Elliott and Cook, who are both 28, And it's almost like gymnastics. At 28, these guys are over the hill. At 28, they're on the downside. At 28, it's long past peak performance, and teams want to move on. So 28 is like dog years with these running backs. I don't know if we'll see many running backs be these outliers that Curtis Martin and Frank Gore and Adrian Peterson were. Again, those guys are not the rule. They're the exception. So... Zeke Elliott, to the Patriots, as a contributing player, part of a backfield backing up Ramondre Stevenson, $4 million. That's the most he could get. This is one of the highest paid running backs in history, now settling for a one-year deal, and it's not getting better, right? He's not going to have a great year and get a big deal next year. Just not going to happen. 
Dalvin Cook, coming off a really good year, coming off a really good career in Minnesota, goes down to $7 million from 12 scheduled, and that's where that is. Now, speaking of him going down to $7 million, he had a $2 million guarantee from the Vikings. Now, that was an offset guarantee. So what that means is the Vikings are now completely relieved of the financial obligation to fulfill a guarantee to Dalvin Cook of $2 million. That has been overtaken by the Jets. In other words, the Jets are paying the $2 million that the Vikings owed at part of the, as part of the $7 million. The Vikings owe the Jets a huge Christmas card here for basically taking $2 million off their hands. Just as they took $108 million off the hands of the Packers, now $85 million for a player that was never going to play again for the Packers, as being the only suitor for that player. So the Jets have been quite a benefactor this year for the NFC North, the Vikings, and more, more impactfully, the Packers. Okay, that's the running backs. Now, we've talked a lot about NFL and player empowerment just not happening in the NFL. I wrote a long piece in Sports Illustrated this week how owners are just clawing back more and more, more land grabs, more ways to put the players in their place, the redo of the personal conduct policy to to now claw back poly, uh, discipline for players for pre-NFL contact, to pre-NFL conduct, to remove owners from the standard of higher conduct, to require, uh, to require disclosure for players of any bad behavior coming into a team. All these things they clawed back on the players without resistance from the union. They've, they've beaten back the Watson precedent with the contracts for quarterbacks. They're doing what we know to these running backs. They're rubbing... Jonathan Taylor's nose in it in Indianapolis. They're making Naheem Hines in Buffalo play for practice squad salary because he was hurt in the offseason on a jet ski. It's just tougher and tougher. And stars even aren't getting great treatment in the NFL. We're still waiting for Nick Bosa to get a contract or Chris Jones. Anyway, contrast that with the NBA. And now we move to the Philadelphia 76ers, and James Harden. James Harden's in China for an appearance, of course, right? And somehow there's video out there the other day of him speaking to a Chinese audience. He's over there for Adidas and saying, I don't trust Daryl Morey, the GM that brought him to Philadelphia. I'll never play for him again. And he said, let me repeat it. I'm not saying let me repeat it. He said, let me repeat that. I'm not playing for the Sixers. I'm not playing for Daryl Morey ever again. Now we got a problem. So the Sixers have this asset who has opted in to a contract for 2023-24, yet says he'll never play there. Seems like a redux of their situation with Ben Simmons a couple years ago. Ben Simmons was ultimately traded. Daryl Morey, to his credit, waited out the market, finally got the deal he wanted, and somehow got Ben Harden out of, I'm sorry, James Harden out of Ben Simmons, who is not even an NBA player at this point, way down the bench in, in the Brooklyn Nets. Now Harden's got his problems. Now, a couple of things that this probably emanates from. Last year, Harden took millions, not, 20, not tens of millions, but millions, maybe 10 million, less than he could have to allow for the Sixers to sign some other players, including his buddies from Houston, Danielle House, and most notably P.J. Tucker, 
who got way above its market anywhere else, making 33 over 3. This year, Harden, who we expected to opt out and be a free agent, opts in for $35 million, which means the Sixers have him for one year, then he becomes a free agent. Well, not so fast. He says he's never going to play there. What was going on here? Why did Harden opt in? Even when he did opt in, it was said to be part of a trade. Well, I don't know what was said to Harden about being part of a trade, because I'm sure Maury would say, well, if, if we get the value we want, you'll part of the trade. And what's happened is they didn't get the value we wanted. He tells the Harden camp, we're not trading, we don't get the value. The Clippers are offering Bupkis, no one's offering anything good. They're keeping him. Harden feels like he was owed a trade or a big contract or one of the above, and he's pissed. Okay, how is this going to end? Well, it's not going to end for a while because we know Maury with Ben Simmons. He's going to wait out for the deal. That deal may never happen. What's Harden going to do? He's not going to show up? Well, there's all kinds of penalties in the CBA, the new CBA, for him not showing up where the Sixers can prevent him from playing for other teams in or out of the NBA. What he could do is what he's done in Houston and what NFL players try to do, the hold in to show up and be a pain in the ass, to show up and not participate, to show up and infect the locker room, and most notably to show up and infect Joel Embiid. And in fact, the only true leverage he has is Joel Embiid, who's the franchise, Could James Harden cause enough angst and heartache and agina to the the front office of the Sixers that it would affect them? How would he do that? Well, upsetting Joel Embiid. We don't know what's going to happen with Joel Embiid. There's some report that he deleted Philadelphia from his bio. I don't believe much of that. But it seems like he's true and true Philadelphia. But he is friends with Harden. Harden, as much people think of him, He's got some sway over NBA players. P.J. Tucker, the aforementioned, says, I'm standing with James Harden. Okay, (laughs) this will be interesting. Now, the Sixers and Daryl Morey have the luxury of time here. There's nothing going on in the NBA. There's not even training camps for two months. There's nothing going to happen, right? This is not going to be a problem until it is. So the back and forth, Morey will sit it out. Harden will make noise. We'll see what happens when it really matters. When does it matter? It matters in October. And maybe it doesn't even matter then. Maybe they sit it out through the trade deadline. Maybe they sit it out all year. We'll see what happens. But Moore is an experienced guy. The interesting part of this is there's no bigger champion, or was at least, for James Harden in the NBA than Daryl Morey. Morey has stuck his neck out for Harden in every situation. Morey talks about Harden glowingly or has talked about him. Maury made it his mission to get James Harden last year and did, picked him up at the airport, talks about how great a star he is, was with him in Houston, all of the above. We don't know where Nick Nurse, the new coach of the Sixers, weighs in, but the fact is Harden's going to make trouble for the Sixers, and the issue is not, not even James Harden. The issue is the affect on players like P.J. Tucker and, of course, Joel Embiid. So we'll see where it goes, <laughs> but right now... Daryl Morey's got himself a quandary here. The guy that he has inextricably linked his career to wants out from his property and has called him a liar publicly. That, of course, has gone viral. In, of all places, China. (laughs) Okay. I feel for Daryl Morey right now. It's tough to be front office 
And it, it sort of tells you something else. You can't be too friendly with players. I know. I've been there. Because you're always going to be on different sides when it matters. You can be friendly. You can go out with their wives and have fun. But there's going to be a point where the rubber hits the, mo- the road. There's going to be a point where things have to be different. We have to take the side of management, and you can't take the side of the player, and the player's got to take the side of the player, and labor and management will collide. That's happening now for Maury and Hardin, and it seems irrevocable, although I've learned in life nothing's irrevocable, and especially with the window of time that they have. Okay, speaking of failed relationships, let's talk about the blind side. Michael Orr is this story out of Memphis that grew up in foster care in many homes, ended up at a private Christian school, ended up being taken in by the Tui family, T-O-U-H-E-Y, which was depicted in a book by Michael Lewis and, more importantly, in a movie where Sandra Bullock portrays Leanne Tui, Tim McGraw portrays Sean, the father, and there's two children who are now adult children. Michael Orr has now released a book. He hasn't played since 2016. He releases a book about his life, and he is claiming that he was taken advantage of by the Tuies, that he signed something when he was 18 that he thought was a familial adoption papers, and it turns out it was more conservatorship where they could control his money, and there was no legal adoption. It affected his money at the movie, at least with an upfront payment, which he never got, which he claims the Tuies all got, and of course the royalties, which he never got, which he claims they all got. Then there's the issue of adoption. It never happened. And of course he claims that he was portrayed as this unintelligible, unintelligent person in the movie, and he's upset the way it is. We'll see where this goes. The Tuies have responded, Sean, with some statement that He doesn't want the money. He's made $200 million in a sale. He doesn't need it. He's offered Mike, the people who offered Mike the same kind of money, and it's a back and forth, and now there will be lawyers. That is all going to play out in court. The conservatorship sounds like a problem for the Tuies. If, If Michael really felt, and maybe they represented, that this was about an adoption more than a conservatorship, But we'll see where this plays out. It's always skeptical when it happened so long ago, and there's a book to be sold. So we'll see about that. The interesting thing for me is the movie part of it. Listen, I am the worst person on earth to go to a movie about sports with. I'm a curmudgeon because I expect these movies, naively, to be somewhat true, somewhat realistic. They never are, especially the one draft day with Kevin Costner where the salary cap person who was the job I had is holding his baby. More on that. Anyway, (laughs) um, and this is another one. It's a great story. I love the movie. Uh, Sandra Bullock was great. The character playing Michael Orr was great. It was loving. It was heartwarming. It was cool. They had the coaches like Oregon and, uh, and Nick Saban come to the house and Philip Fulmer. I mean, listen, it was a cute story. It was a great movie. But... Not realistic. I could tell you that without knowing all the details. The, the, the movies are just lights on a screen, right? Movies aren't real life. And the real life's a little harder, a little harsher, a little less heartwarming, a little less uh, attractive than Sandra Bullock. You know, this is what we have in movies. So I think as heartwarming as the story was, The Blind Side, it's not that heartwarming in real life. So this is what Michael Orr is bringing out. 
about the dark, about the blind side. It's not all kisses and roses with him and the Tuies. Maybe not now, maybe not ever, maybe not the way it was depicted. So I just think we have to take a grain of salt with these movies, especially one as heartwarming as this. There are probably a lot of rough edges on both sides that were not shown in the movie and are coming out now. But now they go to court. <laughs> and Michael Orr, as a strong case, gets an ESPN article yesterday, and it's out there, and we'll see where it goes. Okay, next subject. International soccer it started this weekend. Uh, this past weekend, we had the Premier League start, La Liga, League One in France. Uh, the Italian Serie A starts next weekend, this coming weekend, as well as the Bundesliga, uh, how do you say it, German Bundesliga, 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 there you go. I'm German, I should know that, my heritage. The interesting thing is, um, this is no ordinary start of European soccer, and that's because of the Saudis. We talked about this with golf ad infinitum. I'm sitting again at this home of the live tour last weekend. The Saudi Pro League in soccer has started to make waves, and it is continuing to this day. So it used to talk about international soccer with all the leagues I just talked about. Now we have to talk about it with the Saudi League. The Saudi Pro League also starts this week, and as of this moment, they've attracted European stars away from European soccer with some of the biggest names in the world, such as Cristiano Ronaldo playing for Al Nasir, Jordan Henderson, Kareem Benzema, and they're trying, they tried with Mbappe and they tried with Messi. That's not going to happen. But news today and yesterday, they're getting Neymar. A, a team called Al Halal, they're going to get Neymar. Extraordinary money, anywhere from $150 to $200 million, plus the huge fee from the Saudis to PSG, Paris Saint Germain, where Neymar was, and the money wins. Listen, we have to come to grips with this. And I've said it every week on this podcast. It's happening, right? The Saudis are infiltrating sports. You can call it sports washing. You can call it whatever it is. It is happening. And it's happening in European soccer. So Ronaldo's making whatever he's making, $200 million a year. Neymar's making 100 and something million a year. These are not amounts you can find elsewhere, right? Of course they're going for the money. Right, but the money is not even close. You talk about the biggest stars in team sports in America, they're making, you know, sixty million dollars. Someone like Dame Lillard, someone like Jalen Brown, someone like uh, Lamar Jackson or Justin Herbert, or uh, you know, it's not even close. These players are making twice that, maybe three times that, maybe three times that playing soccer. So it's a new world for European soccer. Now, when you talk about American soccer, yeah, we got Messi. It's a huge deal. But this is not, it's not sustainable if European stars are going to consider America but also have the option of Saudi money as well. Is it sports washing? Of course it is. But listen, the Saudis have a plan. They want to diversify uh, business-wise where oil is not sustainable with just, well, it's sustainable with all the money, but why not sports? Sports is fun. Sports is sexy. Sports has people interested in it. So they're diversifying in sports. They've obviously taken over golf. I don't care what people say about the PGA Tour. They have the money. 
they're taking over golf, and now they're taking over a little bit of the world's most popular sport. And they're doing it with the stars. They've got Ronaldo and Neymar in the past, whatever, six months. Think about that. Think about any sport in the league in the world where an upstart league takes the two of the top three or four best players in the world. It'd be like an upstart football league coming in, and all of a sudden they've got Pat Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers. Like, wait, what? That's what's happening. As Logan Roy says from Succession, the money wins. The money wins. It's happening. Okay, speaking of the money winning, and that's the theme of the business of sports, my last rant is about something I saw about Arizona State college football. Now, we know they're moving out of the Pac-12 in a year and going to the Big 12. But they have a young coach, a 33-year-old named Kenny Dillingham. He's only been head coach at ASU for a few months. He was hired last year after the firing of Herm Edwards, the old uh, former pro coach. And he had a blunt assessment on the reality of big-time football. He was speaking at an event, and he says... We would not have a football team without Nap Lawrence because it's a new day, new age of college football. Who's Nap Lawrence? Nap Lawrence is a booster, right? Nap Lawrence has given some $10 million to ASU, and he's given a million dollars to this, quote, Activate the Valley name, image, likeness campaign they've started at ASU. In other words, Nap Lawrence is the closest thing to an owner of ASU football, and you have the head coach acknowledging it, thanking him publicly, and realizing where his bread is buttered. That's where we are. Remember, NIL was never supposed to be about recruiting and maintaining talent, right? NIL was supposed to be about third-party endorsements at the local furniture store, the local shoe store, the local uh, whatever, auto store, sign autographs, get free products, shout out on Instagram. And for 90% of athletes, that's what it is. But for big-time college football, you need the money to recruit, even though that's illegal in some ways in the NCA, But that's what's happening. Chip Kelly, also in the Pac-12 for now, being the Big Ten next year, was asked about recruiting on a national basis. And he said, that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is how much NIO money. So players are going, whether through the transfer portal or from high school, and saying, what's my package? What's my number? And if the number's good, he'll go there. If the number's not good... He won't. If he's in the portal, he'll go back to his original school. Can you match it? How's the number? This is never what NIO is supposed to be about, and it's about. And now you have a big-time college football coach, by the way, only 33 years old, changing with the times, saying, thank you, Nap Lawrence. Thank you to our owner, because his million dollars is getting us good football players. It's the quiet part out loud. It's what's happening in college football. Like it or not, it's where we are. NIL is everything for recruiting and maintaining talent. Okay, more on this in my newsletter. Go to andrew-brandt.com. More on this in my reels, Andrew Brandt 2 on reels. And more on this in my column at Sports Illustrated. All of this stuff you can find for me. But hopefully this is where you go for your podcast, for your audio entertainment, to be informed to be instructed, to be entertained. Uh, Sports Business League as well. Go to sportsbusinessleague.com. I might be having, I think I'm having, I'm probably having, a webinar before the start of the NFL season, probably that Wednesday before the Thursday night opener. Keep on lookout for that. You'll sign up. I'll give you all the inside scoop on NFL business. 
Thanks to producer Jack Connell. Thanks to musical producer Sam Brand. Thanks to you for listening. Again, appreciate you sharing it with a friend. Appreciate Apple rankings and podcasts. Appreciate you for listening. You can ask me questions, Andrew, at Andrew dash, and I'm sorry, at Andrew, at Andrew dash Brandt. Okay. Have a great week, everybody. I'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt.